Thank you, Frank, for sharing, um, sharing your heart with us again and sharing the heart of God. I remember being on a, a mission trip, I think it was in uh, 2000, what was it, 2002 maybe, where <clears throat> a few of us here were in Belize, a small country in Central America, and uh, as we were down there in Belize, uh, there a bunch of, bunch of children were, were running around and, and they didn't have much, but um, there's one child in particular who was, you know, she's pretty cute, and so a lot of our, a lot of our, our missionaries were going and playing with her, and um, <clears throat> the lady who was on the base, the, the one who was overseeing everything, she said, um, don't just play with the kids who are cute. Don't just play with that one child. Right? There are a lot of children here who are in need of love. Okay? A lot of children here who are equally cute, whether you see that in them or not. I think it's easy for us to withhold love uh, from people just because they don't meet a certain picture of what we think uh, is lovable. But we hear the heart of God and we feel the heart of God again. And so I want to really encourage you and, th and thank Frank for really putting um, orphan care on our radar. Uh, I think it was Russell Moore who said orphan care really is spiritual warfare. When you think about um, the countless times in Scripture, well, the several times in Scripture where um, babies were trying to be aborted or trying to be killed, trying to be executed. It was Moses. It was Jesus. It was these. When, when God was up to something amazing, it's when uh, children were neglected. And so caring for these the least of these, if you will, uh, but caring for orphan. Orphan care is, in a lot of ways, spiritual warfare. Uh, when w an older generation begins to pass away, that's natural, but when a younger generation begins to get attacked, that is oftentimes demonic, and so we want to engage in that. We want to engage in that, and so uh, Frank has given us the opportunity to do that through Holt International. So I want to encourage you, <clears throat> yeah, really think about that. How can we be part of the work of God in caring for those yeah, who have been uh, yeah, in, in left in unfortunate circumstances, but we can help and be uh, the hands and, feet of, uh, hands and feet of Jesus in that way. Before we um, look into the Word of God, can you just look at someone next to you and say, I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Can you do that? Just uh, fill this place with a little bit of the love of God. <clears throat> we have uh, been going through, um, kind of as we're running through this series in what a friend we have in Jesus, we've also been doing a, a discipleship class called Harvest 201. In that class, we've been going through the Word of God, just reading uh, consistently through the Word of God and trying to understand what God is saying to us, not based on what other people are telling us, but just based on what the Word of God says. And as we're reading the Word, this week we were eating dinner, and we just went around sharing, how have you been encouraged and blessed um, just by being in the Word of God, letting God's Word speak to you, letting it wash over your heart, letting it renew your mind, how has the Word of God and consistently reading it had an impact in your life? And there's this one married couple, there's a few married couples who are taking the class, but there's one married couple and the, the lady said, man, you know, reading the Gospel of John has really humanized the people that we often think about, Peter, James, John, Judas, Jesus, all these people, it's really humanized the people. And what she said was, the disciples I've come to realize are so frustrating. Jesus is constantly repeating himself to them because they just don't get it. And she's like, man, the disciples are so frustrating. If I was with them, I would be so annoyed. I don't understand how Jesus is so patient with them. And her husband said, yeah, it's because you're not Jesus. <laughs> and she said, you're right. You're absolutely right. We've been seeing that we are not like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. We saying that no one is like our 
God. And what we've been seeing in this series is that there's no friend like Jesus. Jesus has been constantly doing things that we have seen. He's been, I mean, he's, he did it in scriptures and we've seen it. We read it all throughout the Gospels. But Jesus is constantly, as we've been looking at for the last eight weeks, been doing things to people that cause us to say, you know what, dude, I'm not sure that I would do that. Jesus is, is, is calling tax collectors down from trees and saying, I've got to eat dinner with you. And people are like, dude, I don't think I would do that. There's people with leprosy who you shouldn't get, you shouldn't get close to. And Jesus not only getting close to them, but he's touching them. Doing things were like, dude, I'm not sure I would do that. A woman who's bleeding while Jesus is on his way to go pray for a girl who's sick, who's about to die, and Jesus stops in the midst of a crowd because somebody touched him. And he's looking around to figure out who it is. They're like, Jesus, let's, you got to keep on going. Jesus was constantly doing things that make us say, who does stuff like that? And the more you've been getting into it, the hope is that it wouldn't just be for the sake of information, but it would be for the sake of our transformation that we're understanding. There's no one, no one is like Jesus. Nothing is as beautiful, wonderful, and awesome as Jesus is. There's no friend like him. And the more we understand this, the more it can be transformative in not only the way we relate to God, but in the way that we live life because his grace changes us in order that we live a way that is different. Today we're going to see that just the scandalous and radical nature of Jesus as a friend by looking at probably the kind of person that you would look at and say, I would I certainly look at and say, you know, I don't think I'd be a friend with that guy. We're going to look at Jesus' friendship with one of his 12 uh, men named Judas. You know a lot about Judas, even if you don't go to church. Judas is one of two people in the world, in pop culture, whoever it might be, even though he's a true, uh, he's a true person. He is one of two people that you think of when you think of the idea of betrayal. <clears throat> you think of two people. You think of Benedict Arnold. You think of Judas Iscariot. Right? Two people who epitomize, who embody, who are synonymous with the idea of betrayal. And yet to this Judas, Jesus extends his hand of friendship. What does that mean? What did it mean for Judas? What does it mean for us? And how does that change the way we live? We're going to look at Matthew 26. I'm going to kind of set the table here. This is a Thursday night. Okay, this is a Thursday night, the last night of Jesus' life and one of the last nights of Judas' life. The next day, Jesus would be crucified on a Roman cross. So this is the last night of his life. Okay, Thursday night. Picture ourselves Thursday night. That morning, Jesus had sent his disciples into town in order to prepare the Passover meal. This was a meal that every year the people of God would remember as the high point of their year. This was the holiest night of their lives when they would remember the saving act of God. Remember the one who turned seas into highways? He had, during the Passover, they remember the fact that God had delivered the people out of slavery in Egypt, led them through the Red Sea and into um, into their freedom. The Passover is a reminder of that time when the lamb, I'm sorry, when the, the blood of the lamb caused the angel of death to pass over all who had faith and trust in God. So Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I want you to go and prepare this meal for us. This would be what they didn't know, but it would be the last supper that Jesus would have, the last meal that he would have with his disciples. <clears throat> At that meal, Jesus has been dropping all these hints uh, that he's going to be betrayed. He's been dropping these hints to Judas, hey, you're going to betray me. I know that you know, but he's constantly extending an olive branch to Judas to see if Judas would grab a hold of it. That night, after dinner, Jesus goes and he washes the feet of each of his disciples, 
And then he would later tell them, guys, hard times are about to come. Like really bad times are going to come and you guys are all going to leave me. And they're all like huffing and puffing like, nah, Jesus, we're not going to leave you. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be true. Jesus says, all of you guys are going to leave me. And then about midnight, Jesus takes them uh, to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, this night is going to be so difficult for all of us, I'm going to pray. And so Judas has already left exit stage right. He's got 11 disciples left, eight of them kind of hanging around, maybe kind of keeping watch. Three of them, Peter, James, and John, go with Jesus to pray, and Jesus pours out his soul to his father. Three times he goes to check on his uh, buddies, Peter, James, and John, to see what they're doing, and instead of praying, they're sleeping. Right? They fell asleep, probably because it's like past midnight. It's late at night. So the third time, Jesus is like, wake up, guys, wake up, guys. We got to go because the betrayer is coming. And this is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 26, verse 45. This is the word of God for the people of God. Then Jesus returned to the disciples after praying. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once, making a beeline to Jesus, Judah said, Greetings, Rabbi, and smothered him with kisses and kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. It literally says, Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And this is God's word. What a poignant, powerful, tragic, sad what is going on here in this true story? This happened 2,000 years ago in a garden called Gethsemane in Israel, modern-day Israel. What's happening here? Jesus has gone to pray. Judas has come. And it says, with him was a crowd of people. Literally, the Greek for this language is a tenth of a legion. A tenth of a legion is 6,000. We saw that in the garrison demoniac encounter. 600 armed Men, soldiers with clubs and swords, 600 people. That's If you fill this room with people, not socially distanced, but filled, 600 people. Pack every seat, right, every, just side by side, 600 of us, and let's go get Jesus. Armed with clubs and swords as if Jesus was a terrorist ready to be arrested for insurrection. And here we go, going to arrest Jesus, the betrayer comes. We're going to just look at two things here that this passage and the whole day tells us about Jesus and Judas and the friendship that Jesus offers to him. And through that, the friendship that he offers to you and that he offers to me as well. Here's the first thing. Betrayal by a friend hurts more than wounds from an enemy. Betrayal by a friend hurts more than wounds from an enemy. You probably know this to be true. That's why the names of people like Benedict Arnold and Judas are so popular to us today. We know the sting of betrayal. It's 
Obadiah Stone in Iron Man, right? Uh, one of the great traitors of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's uh, Dark Lord Saruman of the Lord of the Rings. Betrayers, betrayal, something that we're familiar with, at least in culture, in our understanding. We know that betrayal by a friend hurts more than wounds from an enemy. It's the old soap opera trope of the man and the woman who are in love with each other, or so she thinks. The man and the woman are in love, and all of a sudden, one day, the man comes to the woman and says, darling, <laughs> it's always darling in soap operas. They use language that we don't use in real life. Darling, I have something to tell you. It's very important. Please have a seat. What is it? What is it? Are we going on vacation? Are we going to get married? What is it? No, it's something bad, something very bad. What is it? Did you lose your job? Are you sick? And he looks at her and he says, I don't love you anymore. There's someone else. And she's shocked and she's in awe and she starts crying and she says, oh, oh, that's so sad. That's so sad. But I just want you to be happy, even if it means that I'm not the cause of your happiness. But just tell me one thing. Who is it? Who is it? What is her name? And the man says, I can't tell you. And then out of the shadows, a lady says, but I can. <laughs> and that familiar voice shocks the jilted lover, and she says, what? And she looks, and it is her sister. Dun, dun, dun. Sister, how could you? Best friend, how could you do that? Because wounds from a friend, betrayal by a friend hurts far deeper than wounds from an enemy. Some of us know that, don't we? Who is Judas? Judas who became synonymous with betrayal and with being a traitor. Who is Judas? Well, it says here, Judas was one of the 12. Throughout the Gospels, you will see this. Judas, one of the 12. Judas, one of the 12. I think there's at least seven other times in the Gospels that it says Judas was one of the 12. What does that mean? It means he was one of the 12 hand-picked disciples of Jesus. He wasn't one of the 72 that came later or one of the people that chose to follow. This was Jesus handpicked his disciples. Judas was one of the 12. What did that mean? He was in the inner circle. He was in the inner ring. For three and a half years, that is pretty much your college lifetime. For three and a half years, he was Jesus' roommate. He lived with Jesus. He moved with Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He heard the teachings of Jesus. Everything about Jesus he was familiar with. He knew about the kingdom. He knew about the pearl of great price. He saw the conversations that Jesus had with people. He saw the demons flee out of a man. He saw him get set free. He saw demons run into pigs and fly off the ledge. He saw all of that. He was there. He was the one passing out bread to the crowd of 5,000 people when Jesus made a miracle out of five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. He saw that with his eyes. He was there. You see, the problem is we think of Judas as, man, Judas is mad shady. He's like the slim shady guy. Isn't that what we think about when we think of Judas? That's what I think about. Maybe it's because that's the pictures that we see uh, in, the, in, in TV or in books and stories. Let me show you. Here's a few pictures of what Judas looks like in modern understanding. Hey, Judas. He's definitely a betrayer, right? He's a bad man. Look at him. Look at his eyes. <clears throat> Here's the next one. Oh, yeah, definitely. Look at that. The ultimate act of betrayal. You can tell because he's got a crease over his nose. He's a, he's a bad guy. So intense. Next one. Next one. Look at that. Yeah, just the way that he smiles. You can tell he's bad. 
And then the fourth one, oh yeah, Hoodie Judas, definitely, definitely, a, he's a betrayer, he's a shady guy. That's what we think. We think Judas some shady dude. Like he's the kind of guy when the, the Jesus takes his disciples on, a, on an evening retreat and everyone's going to sleep, like Judas is a dude who like makes sure when everyone's asleep, he like sneaks out back and starts like, I don't know, hanging out with like other, I don't know what he does, but that's what we think, right? That Judas, like, he's slim shady. He's, like, going off and doing all this weird stuff. He's, like, you know, doing things he shouldn't be doing. We think we know Judas. We think we've got him pegged. He's a sketchy betrayer. He's a traitor. Like, everyone should have known, but nobody knew that. No one knew that. All these disciples, a bunch of them had things wrong with them. Like, Thomas, that guy was always doubting. Are you always pessimistic, Thomas? Just believe Jesus. Believe that he can do something. Peter, man, that dude's always saying dumb things. You know all about Peter. Like, Peter's doing crazy stuff, saying crazy things. He shouldn't be saying that. There's Matthew. Dude, don't trust Matthew with anything. He was a tax collector. He cheated on all of us. All the James and John constantly fighting with each other about who's the best, like sibling rivalry. But Judas, Judas wasn't like that. Judas was the treasurer amongst the disciples. You understand this, right? You don't want to trust money to a person who's shady. That's the last thing that you do. You entrust money to the person who's trustworthy. I was treasurer of my campus ministry when I was a second year in college, and my pastor asked me before I said yes to this, he said, have you had any uh, inclinations to embezzle money from an organization before? I was like, what? Like, that's the way he talks, too. I was like, what? And I was like, no. He's like, I, I just have to ask you. I just have to ask. Because untrustworthy people don't handle the money bag. That's Judas. Judas is the, he's like, he's the picture perfect disciple, kind of like some of us. Do you understand that when Jesus gave warnings to people who looked one way on the outside and looked another way on the inside, Jesus wasn't talking to those outside of the faith. Jesus' strongest, get this guys, Jesus' strongest condemnation and warning about judgment and about hell was not for those people out there, it was for people inside. Because you see, a lot of us look the part of a disciple, but just because you look like it doesn't mean that's our reality. All over the world today, people are going to put on costumes and put on masks and dress up to be somebody that they're not, right? In order to get something that they feel they wouldn't otherwise get. Now, I'm not even talking about Halloween, I'm talking about the church. That a lot of us are putting clothes on ourselves to make us look like disciples, but inwardly there's been no deep inner transformation. Like that's what we see in Judas. Charles Spurgeon said, there are going to be a lot of deacons, there are going to be a lot of servants of the church in hell. Because it's easy for us to look the part. It was easy for Judas to look the part. Nobody would have suspected that he'd ever sell Jesus out. In Matthew 26, Judas says, he goes to the chief priests and he says, what will you give me if I lead you to Jesus, if I bring Jesus to you. In other words, they didn't come to Judas and say, hey, 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 tell me who it is. We'll give you some money. 
Judas went to them and said, you tell me what you're going to give to me. In other words, what Judas is saying is all of us have a price, don't we? What is the price point at which you would betray Jesus? What would it take for you to betray him, for you to sell him out, for you to say, you know what, yeah, Jesus is not really my master. He's my rabbi, but he's not my Lord. What would it take? Maybe you feel lonely one night, and that's the price that you would pay. That's what it would take for you to betray Jesus. Maybe it's being popular with your friends. That's the price that you'd be willing to pay. Maybe the price you'd be willing to pay is uh, a little bit higher GPA. So you get that test, those answers ahead of time from your friends instead of standing your ground and standing for Jesus. Many of us have a cost. What would we be willing to pay in order to betray the one who loves us? Because you see, it was very easy. It's very easy, Judas can testify for us to look like disciples. But just because we look like it doesn't mean that's who we really are. And this is Judas. What's more insidious about this, okay, what's more insidious about this and most heinous about it is that as he leads this group of people to the arrest of Jesus, he arranges a sign just to make sure that you get the right one. You've seen him, but hey, it's night, it's dark, there are crowds of people. Just want to make sure you get the right person. And so here's a sign, the one that I kiss. Literally, Judah says, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Literally, he says, the one I kiss is the man, seize him, and do not let go of him. This is cold-blooded, savage betrayal. With a kiss. Kiss in those days was a sign of deepest intimacy. A servant would kiss the hem of the garment of his master if he respected them. If he was close, close, close to the master, you might kiss the back of his hand. You would never kiss someone on the cheek unless they were someone with whom you were so deeply and intimately acquainted with. The language of the kiss here is that Judas comes and he kisses Jesus the way that a husband would kiss his bride. The symbol of utmost intimacy becomes the symbol of a cosmic betrayal. And with a kiss... It says literally he was smothering him with kisses. The sign of the betrayal. You see, Judas is so much like you and me who play the part of the lover, who can sing the songs of the lover, and yet for a price, uh, we'd be willing to betray Jesus too. I know I have. I know I often do to my regret and to my shame. And if we're honest, Probably many of us have done that also. And it must hurt the heart of God because betrayal by a friend hurts more than wounds from an enemy. But this message is not about how bad a betrayer Judas was. It's about how good a friend we have in Jesus. And so the second thing that we see is that even though, even though you betray him, even though you betray him, Jesus still calls you a friend. Jesus is still a friend until the very end. Okay, till the very end. As Jesus is being smothered and doused with kisses, verse 50, Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came 
for. See, a lot of us, we read our own understanding, our own tone and interpretation into what Jesus is saying when he says, friend. When I was, uh, it was 1985, 1985, I was nine years old, so third or fourth grade. <clears throat> I had a friend in my neighborhood, Randy Dodson. Uh, we went to the same elementary school. We loved hanging out. We loved playing together. Uh, we both loved sports. And so um, one day, Randy and I were hanging out at my house. Um, back in those days, uh, policemen in Washington, D.C. would give out football cards the Washington Redskins football players, and one for each week of the season. So 16 cards would come out, and every week uh, a different card would come out, and policemen would give it out, and they would have safety tips, like don't talk to strangers, look both ways before you cross the street, things like that, on the back of each card. And I remember it was week eight, because it was card number eight. It was Mel Kaufman, linebacker for the Washington Redskins, number 55. I was so excited. I got Mel Kaufman. I asked the police officer who's a crossing guard. I said, can I get two of them? And so I got two of them. That day, I was hanging out with Randy, and we're sitting in, fr in, my front, um, in, 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 front of, uh, in front of my door, the door and the screen door. We're sitting there trading cards, and I was like, dude, I got Mel Kaufman. He's like, yo, Mel Kaufman, that's number eight. We're only on number six right now. How'd you get Mel Kaufman? So I said, I'll trade him to you. He's like, all right. And so he got out his cards, and at the time, it was 1985 Miami Dolphins. Okay, 1984 was Dan Marino's rookie year, so 1985. This was a baller card. So he said, I'll give you Dan Marino. And then he like, he said, I'll give you other, all these Miami Dolphins. So he counted out like six or seven or eight other Miami Dolphin cards. He's like, I'll give you all these cards for Mel Kaufman. In my mind, I'm like, dude, I got Mel Kaufman for free. Like, this is highway robbery. I was like, absolutely. I was like, ah, eight of the Dolphins for Mel Kaufman. I was trying to like play it off, see if he would sweeten the deal. He wasn't biting, so I said, all right, I'll give you, all right, I'll give you Mel Coffin for these eight cards. So he was excited, I was excited, and for whatever reason, I decided to say, yes, I got these cards, and I still have one more Mel Kaufman left. Well, that didn't make Randy very happy. So I, I, at first, I, I remember correctly, I, I thought he slammed the door, but I remember now, he kicked the screen door, and he said to me, some friend you are, and then he picked up his collection of cards, and then he went home. I was like, whoa, I must have done something really bad. Some friend you are, he said to me. And sometimes that's what we think Jesus is saying here. Friend, some friend you are. Friend, do what you came here for. But that's not what Jesus is saying. You understand this. You understand, you know Jesus. If you've been reading the Gospels, you know who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't, Jesus is not like this passive aggressive, all right, friend, see, let's see what you do. Go do what you came here for. Like, Jesus isn't like that. He's not messing around. He doesn't play games. If he thinks you're a devil, he'll say, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know, say, oh, Peter, you're an angel. No, he didn't say that. He's like straight up. To the Pharisees, he's not like, oh, you guys are like pretty. He said, you're a brood of vipers. You are like snakes. He's not messing around. Oh, friend, you know, but really I mean traitor. Like, friend, but really I mean betrayer. That's not what he's saying. He's saying friend because he really means that as far as Jesus is concerned, he still sees Jesus, Judas as a friend. As far as Jesus is concerned, he says, my relationship with you has not changed based on what you've done to me. And some of us have got to understand this for those of us who feel like we've betrayed Jesus. Jesus still comes to you and he calls you friend. Says no matter what you've done, this is not a 50-50 relationship here where you've got to meet me halfway. 
says, this is unconditional love, where I meet you all the way. In your brokenness, I'll come to where you are. I don't need you to say friend for me to call you friend. He says, even though you betray me, I still hold out the offer of friendship. Here's the deal. Even when you betray him, Jesus will still offer friendship to you until the very end. What Jesus is doing, you see this on the last night of his life. Everything that Jesus does is he's drawing Judas. He's giving him an opportunity, giving him a lifeline, giving him a rope and pulling him back in to say, you've got a chance. You still have a chance. You still have a chance. It's still not too late. My uh, two little kids have been doing this uh, raise craze thing. It's a fundraiser for their school where they ask people to pledge money to them for them to do acts of kindness. And so they'll do things like help mom do the dishes or uh, they wrote a bunch of letters to the mail carrier and they decorated the mailbox and said thank you and put all these notes in the mailbox and they went out and they greeted her as she uh, dropped off the mail. They're just doing different acts of kindness. And there's a certain goal that they've got to meet and it's all basically a front for the school making money. But still, I mean, it's something that the kids enjoy doing and it helps them to, to do kind things. So here, a list of 10, they, they, gotta, they get points for, for sending out 10 emails to people to potentially support them. And so they uh, put my email on there and so you have to write the email address and the person's name. And so Elijah put me as dad. He didn't write, my name is David Kim, my name is dad to him. And so here's dad. And, and so I get these emails from the school, from the raised craze that sound like it's coming from Elijah. I got four emails that I remember that I didn't delete, but I got four emails. The first one said, dad, please support me. Second one said, dad, please help us meet our goal. Third one said, dad, you can still help, but hurry. And the one I got yesterday said, Dad, tomorrow's the last day. This increasing sense of urgency to get me to act upon that which I know I ought to be acting upon. This is what Jesus is doing as he offers the hope of friendship to Judas as he offers friendship to you and to me for all who have betrayed him. What is he doing? At the Last Supper, you understand that Jesus sat Judas right next to him in the position of honor, in the position of a guest who is honored. So that maybe Judas could understand that Jesus still sees him in the same light, even though he had already made the decision to betray him. At the Passover meal, when the bread is wrapped in bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of sin, the bread made with unleavened bread, no time to rise to say that they had to hurry and get out of Egypt, hurry and leave. When the order was given, the bitter herbs were wrapped and dipped in the wine. It was given, the first person to whom it was given meant that this is a person with whom I have a special relationship with. And as Jesus turned and scanned the room, the one person of all that he could have given it to, not John, not James, not Peter, he gave it to Judas to let him know that there's still a relationship with you that I have that is very special if you would grab a hold of it. Judas refused the bread. Later, Jesus goes around the table and he washes the feet of those who are his disciples. That in itself, an act of grace and humility, of servanthood and servitude that nobody in that world had seen. No master would ever wash the feet of their disciples, but here Jesus does that. He does that for John, the beloved disciple. He does it for Peter, who was one of the closest. He does it for the inner ring. And then he gets to Judas. 
I wonder if Judas saw a tear in the eyes of his Savior as he offered up hope of a friendship to him. I wonder what Judas felt as he began to replay the memories of the past three and a half years, the laughter, the inside jokes, the memories, the time that Judas passed gas and thought he got away with it, but Jesus called him out on it. All of those things that he saw, the friendversary on Facebook, the different memories that they had, the pictures that they had, maybe all these things came flooding back to him. That's what Jesus was trying to get him to see as with his, as with his calloused carpenter hands, he's washing the feet of the one who would soon betray him. And as Judas leaves the meal in order to fulfill the vow that he had made to the chief priests and to the religious leaders, the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane, as they're leaving the garden, Judas comes and with a kiss, he prepares to sell out the Son of God, to buy a one-way ticket to hell for the price of 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. One last time, Jesus says to him, friend, saying, I don't change the way that I see you. I still see you as a friend. If you would grab a hold of it, it doesn't have to go down this way. There's another chance. The story of your life doesn't have to end this way. Until the very end, Jesus holds out the hope of friendship, even to you and me who betray him, so many times. And as Jesus offers up the friendship, countless times over this last day, Judas denies the offer of the friendship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, for all the times that his disciples call him Lord, the best that Judas could ever say, the best that he could ever say was call him rabbi, call him teacher. Because he could never take that step over the edge and call him either a friend, a lord, a savior. The fact that he constantly rejected the overtures of the Savior meant that he was never his to belong with, to, to begin with. And so here goes Judas, sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, gets the money bag. At some point, very soon after that, he begins to realize, holy cow, I done did wrong. I've made a big mistake. And so he goes to the chief priest and says, I've betrayed innocent blood. Take this money back. The chief priests laugh at him. <laughs> we don't want your money. We got what we wanted. We got Jesus. We got Jesus. We're going to do with him what we will. Judas finds out that he's been sentenced to death. He weeps and he weeps and he weeps. And at some point it says, that he could bear it no more, that he hung himself and took his guilt and shame with him to the point of ending his life in suicide. I don't know how it all played out. There are different stories and there are different uh, legends that are told, apocryphal writings, one of which says, and this is not true, but it says that Judas was so overcome with grief over what he had done that he ran home and he told his wife who was boiling chicken in a pot, so filled with grief at what he'd done, he said, Jesus is going to be crucified, and I remember he's going to rise from the dead, and when he raises, rises again, he's going to come, and he's going to come after me. And his wife looked at him, and 
She said, a man rising from the dead is impossible. Jesus will no more rise from the dead than this chicken is going to jump out of this pot. And in that moment, the chicken jumps out of the pot. Judas realizes he's done, and he goes and he hangs himself. That's not how it happened. It's a tale. It's a legend. But somewhere along the line, Judas was overcome with grief, and he realized that he'd betrayed the Son of God. If only Judas knew that the true story of Jesus didn't end there, then he would know that his story didn't need to end there either. See, what Judas thought was that it was because of me that Jesus is dying. But he could only understand that to a certain degree because it was true. But it wasn't just because of Judas. It was for Judas that Jesus was dying. It was for the betrayer that Jesus was dying. It was for you, it was for me, it was for Logan, it was for Jeannie, it was for Charles, it's for all, it's for us that Jesus was dying. All those who've ever betrayed Jesus, all those who've ever sold Jesus out, it's for us that Jesus went to the cross. If only Judas could have known that the true story doesn't end at the cross. If only he had known that it wasn't just him who had betrayed Jesus. It was the others as well. All of them except for John abandoned Jesus to die by himself at the cross for fear of what would happen to them. They all fled as well. If only he knew what Mark wrote when he quoted the prophet Zechariah, that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. But the good shepherd would not abandon his flock. He would not leave them. He would not forsake them. But the good shepherd would lay down his life for the very sheep who had abandoned him. That on the cross, that's what Jesus was doing. He was taking the sin, the shame, the guilt, the punishment, the betrayal, and putting those sins and weight upon himself in order that the betrayer could be forgiven, in order that we could be forgiven. It was a grace that he was offering and holding out to you and to me. And when that grace meets us as we are forever, I am changed by your love. If only Judas could understand that. When I was in a, probably sixth or seventh grade, I had a friend at church. His name was Chris. He was my best friend at church for sure. Uh, we, I mean, we just got along from the get-go. We clicked. We loved talking. We loved playing. We loved the same things. Uh, we loved sports. Did all kinds of things together. But at a certain point, maybe in like fifth or sixth grade, I remember, I remember my affection for my friend um, started to wane a little bit. I think it might have been because I was jealous of him, but I remember specifically in elementary school when we were in sixth grade. So sixth grade, um, we went to elementary school, was in sixth grade uh, at that point. I remember for the first time they were doing elections to have officers for the elementary school kids at our church. So there's going to be president and vice pre or president and treasurer and I forget what else there was. And I was certain that I was going to be president of our elementary school church group. So I was really excited about this. They took nominations. David Kim, yay. Okay, anyone second? Yes. Chris Chung, yeah, anyone second? Yes, okay, Chris. And then one other guy. I forget who the other guy was because he was just, he was like the independent candidate. There was like the Republican and the Democrat and then like some, so th they're not going to win. I was certain I was going to win. It was going to be a landslide. It was me. I was like, everyone knew me and I was a good kid and for the most part. 
So anyway, they sent us out of the room while the rest of the, the elementary school group voted. I was like, man, I wonder um, if, I, if I have to give a speech when I become president, like what, how does that happen? Is there a lame duck period? I'm thinking all these thoughts in my mind. And then they send out the, 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 the lady who was, so there was a, the overseer, the director, the chundo, and she had a younger sister who was kind of like the assistant chundo, assistant director. And so she came out to get us. And I was like, you know, starting my victory dar- uh, march in. And she's like, who is Chris? I was like, what? She said, who is, who is Chris? And, I was like, and in my mind, I was like, why do you want to know who came in second place? Like, that's weird. She's like, who, who is Chris? And I was like, Chris. He's like, Chris is the new president. I was like, what? He, he's the president? What about me? She's like, you treasurer, right? You're the treasurer. So I became the treasurer. But after that, I was like, man, how did he become president? I, was like, I think I was a little bit salty before salty became a word. I was a little bit salty about that. But I was like, okay, whatever. A year later, or maybe that year, seventh grade, went to a retreat. It was a winter retreat. I just remember it was dark and it was cold. There was snow around. And I remember it was a good retreat, like, you know, as, as good as a retreat can be if you don't really know Jesus. And then Chris came running up to me at night um, after the worship service was done. He's like, David, 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 did you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord yet? And I was like, yeah, dude, like, we all did that. Like, we all did that in VBS. Like, I did, like, 10 times already. So, like, why are you all, like, crazy about now? I was like, yeah, dude, I did it. And he's like, oh, man, you beat me to it. He was, like, so excited. He's like, you beat me to it. Like, I'm going to heaven, too. I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord tonight. The whole thing, like, exactly verbatim like that. Like, I put my trust in Jesus. He said, like, over and over because that's what he, he was really excited about it. I was like, dude, that's awesome. I, you know, I, I wasn't that excited because I thought I'd done that before. But at the same time, I think there was, there was part of me that was really jealous because he was really happy. Like, he was genuinely joyful about having come to know Jesus. And I was like, I didn't really feel that way. I don't really feel that way right now either. So I was just like, hey, that's awesome. And maybe in my mind, I was, I was still a little bit jealous. So I made up my mind, to, uh, you know, sometime later. I said, I'm not going to be his friend anymore. That's <laughs> really bad, right? I'm a jerk, but I was like, I'm not going to be his friend anymore. I, I, like, I had these, like, grand, so my mind thinks a little bit differently, but I had this, like, grand idea of, like, this was, that, like, that this was cool. Like, when we watch wrestling, you would see, like, Hulk Hogan and Macho Man, they're, like, tag team, and all of a sudden, like, one of them would turn their back on the other and become a heel, and you'd be like, oh, dude, that's so awesome. So in my mind, I was like, dude, that is so cool. Like, I want to be like that. I don't know why I did it. Was like, it was a dark period of my life, I think. I was just going through some stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, I'm not going to be his friend anymore. So we went to church, and I'd, like, sit with other people, or I wouldn't sit with him. Or we go to church, and I wouldn't talk to him. And, and for, like, a, a few weeks, I was like, yeah, I'm just not going to be his friend. I didn't say anything. I didn't say, like, I'm not your friend anymore. I just, I just, like, gave him the cold shoulder, and I went and sat by myself. But Chris was so happy. Like, he was so happy about everything. He was always smiling. His dad was, like, the class president of his school in Korea, just like that kind of a guy. He's always happy. And because of Jesus, he's, like, more and more happy now. He's like, hey, David, come sit with me. And I was like, eh. And, and, and then I felt awkward. So I was like, all right, I'll go, fine. I'll go sit with him. I don't want to. And he knows that it wasn't my choice, but he told me to come. So I'm sitting with him. And then he's like, oh, hey. And he's, like, kept on talking to me. And we'd eat at church, and he'd be, like, talking to me. And and even though I was, like, so mean to him for those, like, three weeks that I wasn't his friend anymore, for those three weeks I was so mean to him, but he kept on pursuing me. He kept on being my friend. He kept on wanting that friendship. And in time, I said, you know what? This is dumb. Like, I don't want to not be his friend anymore. I want to be his friend again. And so I became his friend again because his undeserved kindness to me changed my heart 
that didn't want anything to do with him and drew me, in fact, back into that friendship with him. What Jesus is doing is he's trying to woo Judas back into his heart, trying to woo him with the embrace of friendship. But for Judas, it was too late. He had already handed his soul over to Satan, had already made that decision. Satan doesn't invade our lives apart from our own opening up the door to him. And through sin and through unconfessed sin, Judas had opened up the door. His love for money, whatever it might have been, led him to open the door to the enemy. The enemy got a foothold in his life, and it was too late. And the reason why we have in all of the Gospels recorded the true story of Judas is that it might not only warn us, but it might be an encouragement to us. That for all who feel like we've betrayed Judas, until the very end, Jesus still calls us friend. He says, no matter what you've done, Jesus says, I'm bigger than your failure. I'm bigger than your betrayal. I'm bigger than your sin. I'm bigger than your mistake. I'm bigger than whatever you might have done. I will still offer that friendship to you. Because here's our reality. Betrayal by a friend, it hurts a lot more than wounds from an enemy. And we are Judas. And yet Jesus still calls us friend. Let's pray. Have you been running from Jesus? Have you been running from Him? Have you had thoughts of betraying Jesus? Have you had thoughts of just, yeah, I'm just going to mail it in. I'm just going to do my own thing. I wonder if Jesus, what Jesus thinks. I wonder if Jesus had tears in his eyes when he looked at Judas, called him friend. Not tears for himself, but tears for Judas. Tears for all that Judas was giving up and all that he was missing out on. I wonder if you look into the eyes of Jesus for those of us who are running from him now, if you would see the tears of Jesus for you and all that you're forfeiting when you run from him. His grace is amazing. His friendship is offered. Until the very end, Jesus extends that friendship to you. He says, will you grab a hold of him? Even when you let go, he still holds on. Let's pray for a few moments together like that. Can you pray thanking Jesus for what a friend you have in him? For a scandalous kind of love and grace, an unconditional commitment, faithfulness and fidelity to you based on a covenant that was made. That Jesus loves you as if you were the only one to love and he loves you as if you had never sinned because he's taken your place and given you the free gift of love. Let's take a moment to pray, confessing our sins, our betrayal, our shortcoming, our failures. He sees all that. He is the man of sorrows who's absorbed that for himself. But your story does not end with your failure. It continues on with grace, and it culminates in glory. This is your story. This is your song. This is your reality. Let's pray for a few moments together like that. And then I'll pray on our behalf as we then continue to pray through this song. Let's pray together for a few moments, and then I'll pray for us. Thank you, Jesus. Lord Almighty, we need you. God Almighty, we need you. 
Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for grace. We thank you for Jesus who goes to the betrayers, who goes to the broken, who goes to those who need you the most, who goes to those who feel like we don't need you, but in actuality who need you more than we could ever dare to imagine. Lord Almighty, we need you. So come, come Holy Spirit, and lead us and guide us and help us to be who you want us to be. Lord Almighty, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for wrongdoing. Father in heaven, we come to you as uh, just people who are desperately in need of what you have given to us in your son, Jesus. Father, I confess that it's easy for me. The price for me is oftentimes pretty low. It's the price of my comfort, the price of my sleep, the price of my reputation, the price of my convenience. For things as simple and as silly as that, but I've often betrayed you. And in our collective hearts, there are things, be it money, be it pleasure, be it a girl, be it a guy, be it a dream, be it a wish, be it money. There are things that we would gladly trade you for in any given moment. For that, we're sorry. We're sorry. We know we're not just remorseful, though. We are repentant because we know that grace, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance, knowing that you love us no matter what we've done, knowing that you call us friend even when we considered you an enemy, knowing that you offer friendship even though we've betrayed you. Thank you that this is grace the likes of which are not found anywhere else in this world. Thank you that this is who you are. What a friend we have in Jesus. May we know you personally. May we cling to you intimately. May we experience you deeply. And would you be our deepest friend for each of us? That friendship changes us. When we know your grace, when we know your grace, nothing could ever be the same again. Thank you, Jesus, that because of us, you were the man of sorrows. But thank you that because of God, our Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, the story of our lives and the story of your life did not end with betrayal in the cross, but it continues on. And the best is yet to come. Help us to lean into that, to believe in that, to stand on that, and to drink deeply of your grace today. Thank you so much. We love you, Jesus, our friend, because you've loved us and offered friendship first. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.